Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today is November 7th, and today we're going to be discussing the future of food with Dr. Jason Lusk. Jason is Distinguished Professor and Head of the Department of Agriculture Economics at Purdue University. He needs no introduction for those of us in the field. He was a fellow of the Agriculture and Applied Economics Association, and he most recently served uh, as president. Thanks, Jason, for being here today. Yeah, hi, Brady. Thanks for having me on. Yesterday at the University of Guelph, you gave a thought-provoking lecture titled The Future of Food. And we've been debating the future of food since the 18th century. So I thought we'd begin there. Talk to me about that. Yes, sometimes when we think about the future, it's useful to look at the past and what people were worried about um, in terms of their their future problems, which became our present. But, you know, really, I think going back to intellectuals throughout the last two, three hundred years, you know, Thomas Malthus is probably the most well-known of those. He, he was writing the late 1700s, early 1800s, and... He's well known, we've heard of the Malthusian concern, but basically the concern was that we're gonna have increasing population, and then that population is gonna continue to be applied to a fixed amount of land, and as a result, we're gonna have this thing called diminishing returns, that the amount of food that's gonna be produced per unit of labor applied to that land is gonna fall. And so the concern is we'll end up with this large population that's not able to feed itself, or that's really on the verge of starvation. And that prompted a lot of concern, a lot of writing, a lot of criticism over time, but it's a concern that really didn't go away. So you fast forward 100 years, um, I talk about a, a British um, intellectual at the time who, who mentioned very similar concerns. They were worried about growing world population in places like Canada and the United States. And uh, he, he coined the term, uh, the wheat problem, about uh, you know, his concern was we're going to run out of wheat to eat. We have all these developing countries. They're going to start importing and take the wheat away from uh, you know those those of those folks that consider themselves part of the developed world. Then, um, so that was you know about a hundred years ago. And then we fast forward to you know almost present day, so late 1960s, and you have writers like Paul Ehrlich, Lester Brown, for example, that were you know, espousing very similar concerns, slightly different focus, but mainly the concern was we're not going to be able to feed ourselves. We're going to have some collapse and we've got too many people and we're not going to have enough resources to feed them all. And so I, I think, you know, throughout history, those have been the, that has been the main concern of the leading intellectuals over the years. Uh, and what I think is fascinating about that is that is not the concern of today's leading intellectuals uh, in terms of food and agriculture. In fact, you know, what they have done in large part is look at our food system and, and called it a broken system, which I, I think is interesting in a lot of ways because the food system, despite all of its flaws, has in a lot of ways uh, addressed the concern of, of Malthus and, uh, and Sir William Crooks and, um, and Paul Ehrlich that, that we indeed found ways not only to feed people, but to um, reduce rates of food insecurity and to bring down rates of poverty. And so we really found, you know, we're able to live up to the challenges of those leading intellectuals, but we seem to have found new challenges that we want to pay attention to for the future. Right. Um, now, I mean, Malthus probably, when he looked back, when he was looking back at history, might have been right. There was, you know, agriculture yeah. technology hadn't taken off, but then right after he had this concern, the agriculture sector that emerged has been, you know, amazing at at, at least putting off, if not removing, in a sense, 
the widespread concern that we're not going to have enough food to eat, but it's still present in some form today. I mean, we still look at the world, some people do, and they say, oh, we might not, how are we going to feed uh, a population, you know, in 20, 30 years? Um, and I guess what you're saying is it's the current um, agriculture uh, sector or the current the contemporary agriculture has done really well at yeah. addressing that issue and now the 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 intellectual challenge of the day for some is not about how do we raise productivity and how do we provide mm-hmm. agriculture it's about other issues well, what are those other issues that they're thinking about yeah what's well, a whole set of concerns i should maybe just back up and try to be fair to you know people like malthus and and uh, paul ehrlich you know, the very concern that they expressed probably prompted people to undertake actions to do something about it. So, you know, it's it's not to say they weren't right. It, they could have been right, actually, if we wouldn't have figured out ways to increase productivity. And in fact, you know, Malthus's model is not incorrect. It's just that what we did is we shifted that production frontier out over time. There's still diminishing returns. It's just if we can get on a new production function every so often, we'll, we'll be more productive. Now, in, I just want to, because yeah. you, in, your, in your presentation you had um, yesterday, you had some really neat ways of characterizing when you say uh, shifting the production function out. I wonder if you could just kind of talk a little bit. In, in more kind of lay terms, if you will, just uh, what you mean by shifting out that production function over time. Yeah, so I'll give you two couple of examples. One is data from uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they have have an index of output use of outputs and inputs uh, for for the last 50, 60 years. So since the the late uh, 1940s, uh, in the United States, agricultural output has increased 100 and almost 170 percent. So a lot more agricultural output over that time period. But interestingly enough, if you look at the use of inputs, particularly labor in land, uh, but labor in particular has fallen by about 70 percent. So the, in some ways, this is like exactly the opposite of what Malthus's concern is. Not only are we getting more output, we're getting more output while at the same time using much less labor. And that's really what productivity is, is more output using fewer inputs. Um, it's one reason that I like to say you know, productivity is really a cornerstone of sustainability because if you can get the same amount of output using fewer resources, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Um, we're conserving more resources for the future. So that's sort of one measure. Um, another way, more practical way perhaps to think about it is... is um, through a little thought experiment, and that thought experiment goes like this. Let's say we want to consume the same amount of food, let's pick a a category like uh, beef, that we actually ate today in the year 2017, but we wanted to do it using 1950s technology, and by technology I mean basically yields. How many more cows, beef cows, would we need to do that? And by my calculations, it's you know over 15 million more beef cows. That's literally cows. It's not counting all the steers and heifers um, that are involved there. Uh, if you look at commodity crops like corn, for example, in the United States, we, we would need over 200 million more acres. We need to triple the amount of corn acreage. Uh, if we wanted to eat this, consume the same amount of corn we consumed um, in current day, but instead we're using 1950s technology. So. You know, when we look at it like that, it's just an absolutely incredible, uh, um, you know, increase in progress and achievement in terms of, uh, you know, productivity growth. That productivity growth is labor saving, it's land saving, but it also saves all the resources that would have gone into all those extra acres, whether it's water, fertilizer, or, um, or pesticides or herbicides. We we use fewer of those because we we can get by um, on less, you know, lower amounts of land and other things. So, so I think it's really dramatic. <laughs> the, the levels of increases. And getting back to your question about the leading concerns today, 
in some way this dramatic productivity growth has enabled us to be able to to afford to worry about different things um, so the sort of modern food movement if you will is a collection of a whole host of, of best-selling authors NGOs public writers uh, celebrity chefs um, food writers and you know it's not a single issue or a single person but by and large I would say they're they've expressed a whole set of concerns that relate to things all the way from concentration and consolidation in agriculture so concerns about market power their concerns about env environmental outcomes whether it's greenhouse gas emissions or uh, runoff in waterways for example um, or you know concerns about human health that that we have you know in in their mind too many cheap calories in the developing world and yes we have problems of food insecurity but we also have problems of, of obesity and diabetes and, and other things um, and so that that would be sort of their critique of the food system and, and I would say um, you know in terms of kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs we it, it they've you know once you've made, been able to say okay we can feed most of the people around us in a way then you can you can start worrying about some of these other uh, higher order concerns and I, that's probably where we are uh, in, in terms of our food environment and food culture I want to I want to kind of talk about that some more but first let's, I want to kind of characterize the, the contemporary agriculture sector mm -hmm. so we look back it's been highly productive it, and you've given some examples mm -hmm. of that. Um, some other points you raised, and I think I'll get this right, but you can correct me, is that 8%, and we're talking about uh, Jason's research is in the United States, but the gener these general issues of productivity and um, the suite of concerns of the modern food movement, they, they are very much shared in Canada. But using the U.S. data, you say something like 8% of the farms uh, produce about 80% of mm -hmm. the food. Yes. Is, that, is that right or the value? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, one thing is just looking at the number of farms over time. Again, this is U.S. data, but, you know, before the 1950s, there were between 6 and 7 million farms in the U.S. Uh, today, there's uh, less than 2 or around 2 million. So that's a pretty dramatic reduction. But really, that 2 million, in, in my opinion, is a, is a very dramatic overstatement of, of the number of farms that really contribute to meaningful output. And part of it is how the... U.S. Department of Agriculture counts a farm, so they count they count you as a farm if you have a thousand dollars in sales, and not even actually actual sales, just the potential to sell a thousand dollars. So if you have a cow sitting out, you know, somewhere on, on your land, you're a farm, uh, because that that's a thousand dollars worth worth. Canada's of, definition is similarly broad. Yeah, and so um, so when you but when you really kind of boil it down and say yeah, who's producing the food, the statistic you you shared is is right. It's about between seven and a half and eight percent of of U.S. farms produce 80% of the value of ag output. And when you put that in a numbers term, it's about 160,000 farms are producing 80% of the value of ag output in, in the U.S. And I, you know, I think you're exactly right. You'd find very similar numbers in Canada. So it's really, you know, incredible uh, in a lot of ways, uh, incredible both because it's so concentrated, uh, incredible because so few people can really feed so many. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it does speak a little bit to some of the concerns of the food movement, and that is that most people have very little connection with people on that scale of operation, um, that it's hard for them to understand why they make the choices they do or what they're doing or how those you know, foodstuffs flow through the food system. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a food system that is incredibly efficient, but one that's also very foreign to a lot of food consumers. So we've got increased productivity. We... Uh you were happy that we forestalled this Malthusian nightmare. 
and um, farmers uh, have done better in terms of their wealth and their income. And yet there are a lot of concerns, which you mentioned as kind of the new food movement, and you mentioned some of them. So I thought one thing I might do is just throw them out to you, okay. and uh, you can kind of hit them back uh, as you will. So I, and I think one of the concerns is just the concern about the size. We're concerned that 8% of the farms are producing 80% of the product. And uh, so some people might say, look, that's not uh, agriculture sector that um, that they want to promote. What's the the trade-off there, or mm. you know, what concerns you about that kind of a statement? Yeah, well, I, I would just say, you know, again, it's, it really is about trade-offs. It's not that we can't have a food system that has many smaller farms. It's just really about what are we going to what are we going to give up to get it? And um, you know, I think you know a familiar economic concept or is economies of scale that this idea that the bigger you get your per unit cost can can fall so if we had many fewer smaller farms my guess is you'd have higher production costs on average um so that would trickle down to probably slightly higher food prices and you know is that a trade-off somebody's willing to make it's um it's it, some people might be willing to make that others may not it probably might depend on your income and food preferences one other caution and pushback I would say too is there are a lot of food and ag technologies that don't make sense unless you're big that take something like a combine um, you know you're talking about a piece of equipment that's half a million dollars if, if not more uh, if you're farming five acres it's not going to make sense for you to have a half a million dollar combine you need to have some scale for it to make sense for you to adopt those technologies that can really lower those production costs. And that's just one example, but you can think of several, many examples like that, whether it's you know various forms of irrigation or what have you, that, that these technologies, the benefits of them won't really kick in until you can get to be a, of a certain size and scale. And, and so again, if, if we don't want that size, uh, it's pro- you know the, the main consequence of that is gonna be higher production costs. Um, and, and that will, ultimately lead to higher food prices. I think I see that that is sort of the key trade-off there. Another kind of trade-off too is, um, you know, what are the opportunities available to people? Um, you know, and, and I think one of the reasons we've experienced, we look across countries, um, countries today that are relatively rich are countries that have largely transitioned uh, employment out of agriculture. They have um, moved to more industrial sector, or even now today, more service sector kind of employment. And uh, countries that are still poor today are countries that still have large-scale agricultural employment. Um, now, it's hard to necessarily say that's, that's causation there, but I, I think that would be one concern of mine is if somehow we wanted to say we want a more agricultural-based sector that has a lot more employment in agriculture, if you just look at the pattern of economic development across countries, that, that's seems to me to suggest you're going to have a country that's going to have lower economic growth um, overall. So I think that's another kind of concern that I would probably have. Yeah, I lived in a a small village in rural Lesotho for two years, and um, most people were involved in agriculture. And I knew everybody um, that because there wasn't a store, you had to actually go to someone to get Mm -hmm. the produce. So it was as local as as you could get. And it was, um, you know, not something that I think I would want to have to emulate. Uh, <laughs> you didn't stay. You, you came, yeah, you came back. Came yeah, back, Right. Okay, so but what about the person who says, and I just want to kind of throw these at you. Um, look, the, the technologies that have led to increased productivity uh, um, have worsened the environment. I mean, I think that's another standard concern that you would hear. 
what would, how would you shape that discussion, or how would you think about the trade-offs in that context? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, technology is sort of amoral. <laughs> it can do good things, or sometimes it can have unintended consequences. So some technologies, um, you know, to, to pick a particularly controversial one, let's talk about biotechnology, for example. Um, some people might say one of the one of the challenges in even talking about something like biotechnology is a lot of people's aversion to biotechnology has nothing to do with biotechnology. They'll say things like, "Well, I don't like monocultures." Well, we have, we probably have monoculture regardless of whether we have biotechnology or not. That was happening well before um, biotech. So, in, in in fact, in some ways, you could look at the technology of biotechnology as enabling uh, farmers to adopt a set of practices that are actually beneficial to the environment. So, for example, herbicide-resistant soybeans um, allows uh, farmers to do more low-till and no-till cropping because you can control weeds much more easily. If you have a herbicide, you can spray and get rid of those weeds without having to till, till up the ground. Um, and you know, there's a lot of debates about whether herbicide use has increased or decreased. Uh, but I think one thing is quite clear that the kinds of herbicides we're using now are far less toxic to the environment and to humans than the ones we were using before. So biotechnology has kind of enabled that. So it's, you know, there are some concerns like herbicide re resistant weeds uh, and, you know, people worry about, you know, whether we're in some kind of chemical arms race. You know, we, we actually we're always in a race with nature all the time, regardless of whether we're using uh, biotechnology or not. But um, so I, I think it's really, you know, it's I. I I guess I don't. I wouldn't accept the premise all the time that technology has worsened environmental outcomes because I think in the cases I just mentioned, I think a strong case could be made actually that it improved environmental outcomes relative to what would have happened otherwise. Um, and so, you know, were some technologies, you know, if we want to call them technologies uh, that we used in the past, whether it's sort of strip till um, farming, did that produce some adverse environmental outcomes regarding you know soil erosion and things? Yeah, it probably did. Uh, and we probably learned from those, and we've learned better ways of plowing and handling the soil. Um, and uh, the other thing I would say there is, let's first agree that we think uh, we want to improve the environment. And, and then if we can agree on that premise, I bet there are a lot of technologies that we might agree uh, could help us get there. So precision ag might be one of those today that um, by having better data and information about different parts of the field. Maybe we don't have to apply, uniformly apply nitrogen fertilizer across that whole field. Maybe we could just apply it in the places where it's needed and then we won't perhaps have as much runoff. That's a technology fix. It's a technology fix that can potentially save a farmer money. It's a technology fix that can potentially help prevent uh, you know, runoff into our waterways. And so to me, you know, if I was concerned about environmental outcomes, I'd want a lot of technology fixes. All right, another one, just to kind of keep on the roll. Mm -hmm. I'll stop eventually, but we can keep going, right? Yeah. Because these things are all out there, and I think one of the things that I picked up from your presentation yesterday was uh, your desire to kind of look at these mm -hmm. things as trade-offs and try to mm -hmm. talk to these issues. So forgive me, I'll just go. Yeah. Animal welfare. Um, and I think you could almost put the current agriculture system um, doesn't treat you know, animals well. Mm -hmm. That would be another critique that you might um, hear. Yes, um, and I think that, that actually when you ask people about sort of current, you know, their, their, their beef, if you will, sorry the pun, with, you know, modern commercial farming, it's actually animal agriculture that a lot of people have problems with, really, if, you, if, if pressed on the issue. 
Um, so, you know, again, it's this, these animal welfare issues are really, you know, tricky with a lot of trade-offs. So, you know, one of the things I like to talk to people about is, is try to think about, think through the story of why it is that we decided to bring animals, uh, mainly hogs and, uh, pit, and, uh, and um, chickens, indoors in the first place. And the answer is because, uh, first of all, a lot of parasites and diseases outside. Uh, it's cold outside in the winter, um, and so those animals aren't going to be productive. And they'll, they'll, in a lot of cases, die from weather conditions and predators. And so there's a really logical reason to try to think about bringing those animals indoors into kinds of systems where they can have a more controlled environment. And, um, you know, you've seen a lot of increases in animal productivity over time, you know, really incredible gains there and 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 so why have you know why can you get more pounds you know per sow or why can you get more eggs per chicken in part it's because uh, the animals live in a more comfortable environment they have better feed than they had before they're not you know they're not being eaten by predators or they're not they don't have pesticides or not pesticides pests or or uh, you know viruses that are attacking them and, and so we get less expensive food um you know the i think that the cons you know the cons consequences of our modern production systems is animals aren't able to exhibit some of their natural behaviors they had before if you have an egg-laying chicken um in a modern battery cage system they can't you know dust bathe or scratch on the ground like they might have an urge to do they maybe can't lay their eggs in a nest like they might have an urge to do and so i, th I think you know there there are some trade-offs there in terms of animal well-being that uh would be worth thinking about and, and it, it when you get down to the economics it's, it's again a trade-off of costs we can give animals more space we can give them amenities like um you know perches and and you know nest boxes but those are more costly and you know we those will entail higher costs I just i just completed a study on um and some animal housing laws that were passed out in california and went into place in 2015 that essentially got rid of the or outlawed the battery cage production system, and we able were able to compare prices in California before and after this law, and also relative to other states that didn't enact this law, and you know at least initially prices were about 30 percent higher than they were before, and then they fell a little bit over time, but still about 10 percent higher than we calculate they would be otherwise. So that's the trade-off: well, higher higher prices, and so the question is: Is it worth it? Um, is it worth it? to pay for that and I, I think there's a lot of consumers that would say yeah that's worth it and there'd be a lot of consumers that say no it's not and I, I want to talk about that so yeah. let's talk about that yeah. the consumer that might say yeah I'm happy to pay for that trade-off mm -hmm. and and the consumer that um, might say no and where are they on the income <laughs> spectrum yeah so this you know a lot of these things do have a very strong income gradient if you will that um, the things, the people who say, yeah, I'm willing to pay the extra for the environment or this quote-unquote naturalness uh, or even animal welfare are tend going to tend to be those consumers hiring, have higher incomes. In fact, I do this uh, survey question where I ask people about their food values and have them rank a whole set of 12 or, or so food, things that could be important to you in terms of food. You know, one of the big issues that shows up there is food price. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're low, have relatively low income, food prices, the price of food is much more important to you than if you're relatively high income. Now, that's not shocking to anybody necessarily, but it does tell you on these sorts of issues, those trade-offs, um, you you can expect to probably find strong disagreement about about the relative importance of those at people on, on different ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And I think that's been one of the challenges probably in the policy debate is that. Often the policy debate are influenced by people who have access to um, 
to the politicians and have the income and, the, and frankly, the free time and the connections to influence media and narratives, and that those tend to be higher, frankly, higher income consumers. And um, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying it may not be representative, representative of the average food consumer. Um, and I, I'll, I'll ask, this is getting a little off your question, but I, I will say um, there's also sometimes a little bit of wishful thinking. I mentioned the California example. Um, you know, one of the interesting you know, conundrums there is that this, this was a state ballot initiative. So Californians went to the polls to vote to ban these, these housing practices. And, and, it, and this policy passed with 63% of the vote. At the same time, cage-free eggs were for sale in California and had less than a 10% market share. So in essence, what happened is people went to the polls, voted to ban something that they regularly purchase. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've tried to do some research to understand why people might do this. Um, we've investigated all sorts of hypotheses. Uh, our best explanation so far is that we don't know why people do this still. But I think that's, a, that's the conundrum for producers, is to say that sometimes through the political process, um, you're going to impose an unfunded mandate. And what I mean by that is you're going to force me to adopt production practices that, that have been shown through the market that you're not willing to pay a premium for. And, and so, that, in other words, you're asking me to adopt a production process you're not going to pay me for the extra cost uh, for. So I think, you know, what are the answers to those problems? I'm not sure, but, but I, I certainly think there's some of that disagreement that's going to happen both within agriculture and without, but also within consumer groups that differ between sort of low and high income in terms of what's going to be important to them. Let's, let's play around with that idea because I think it's a neat ag governance mm -hmm. kind of uh, question and then maybe we can move in and it kind of anticipates mm -hmm. uh, the what will the future look like <laughs> of ag food. But um, it seems to me that the market comes in and it fills these niches and that's one aspect of it. So there's a higher, let's say, a higher income group that would like to purchase food in a certain manner, but that doesn't necessarily preclude a more conventional mm -hmm. food. Um, but it strikes me that a trade-off that you're trying to like make us aware of is that you know that that's the market um, that in a form of governance essentially uh, that's working, and um, but that there could be disproportionately kind of deleterious effects on low-income people if you said okay we're going to not allow this variation and we're going to require a particular type of production mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. And do you see that happening? I mean, is, you know, this seems to me a fundamental concern of yours and uh, kind of our discussions. Um, is that, you know, talk to me a little bit about the future and <laughs> to the extent that you see this happening in other policies. Maybe give our listeners kind of a broad overview of why you're concerned about this. It's mm -hmm. not maybe just a particular policy, but a kind of... Yeah, so I would say, you know, some of the overarching themes of the things that I've been writing sort of in a public way about is one, what we've been talking about here, they're, they're trade-offs and understanding those trade-offs. We can't, we're not going to have free lunches, but one of them that's directly re relevant to what you just asked about is, you know, let, let's respect other people's choices and preferences and, and make sure, particularly when it comes to public policy, that we don't have a set of, you know, policies that dis, you know, are disadvantageous to some of the lower, the people who are, you know, in a least advantageous place in society. Um, and so that that's one of my concerns. And you can call it elitism or you can call it paternalism. Those are have very negative connotations. And, and I think they, they carry negative connotations for a reason. That's because most people don't like to be called an elitist or a paternalist. And um, 
and I, but I, at the same time, I'd say a lot of these policies and ways that people have of thinking about the food system are indeed paternalistic and, and elitist. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with having alternative food systems that cost more for people who want to pay for it. Um, it also doesn't mean that if there are legitimate externalities that we can't think about ways of internalizing those costs. You know, speaking of government governance, you know, there there are also opportunities for you know, if tr if real harm has been done from various production practices, there there are legal repercussions, lawsuits that can be filed. Um, I think all of that's fair game. Um, but that being said, I think you know we we shouldn't try to put everybody in the same mold and have everybody eat just like I want to. Um, and and I think that's sort of a big big push of mine. It's not really probably a critique of, of so much about the eating advice of the food movement as it is the policy prescriptions of, of the food movement. Although I would say some of the eating advice people give is probably not made with the best you know available science. So sometimes I want people to make choices, uh, well-informed choices, and um, as long as you understand the trade-offs, then you know make, make the choices you want to make. And I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make fun of you for whatever choices you make one way or the other. Um, as long as they're well-formed and articulated, but the reality is we're all going to have different preferences, different incomes are going to lead us to different sets of choices. Um, and so that that's sort of, I think, an overarching concern of mine. One thing, and, um, you know, thinking, you know, hinting a little bit about this sort of future of food, I think one of the benefits of, of technologies, yeah, it can help in some, maybe in some cases, speed consolidation, but when that food, those technologies can be applied to foodstuffs to create more variety and options, which I think is a, a really a good thing for food consumers that we don't all have to eat the same we can have more variety more abundance and there will be more opportunities for people to find their own unique sets of food choices that that really uniquely appeal to them uh, it's really the amazing thing about our current market system if you have a, a really unique set of preferences about music or uh, a certain genre of film it would have been hard to satisfy those preferences in the past there might be a really you know eclectic or eccentric bookstore or record store in your hometown, uh, but even it probably wouldn't have something that that catered to people with really you know extreme preferences. But we have this you know online economy, and we have this diverse food system that really can cater a whole bunch of you know really unique sets of preferences. And I think that's actually a really good sign um, that that we have. And so, you know, again, I would say respecting people's choices is is something that I am a proponent of. So uh, let's talk about. The future. So the the past has the present is really characterized. The way we get our food is by you know a few farms serving a lot of people, highly productive, um, and we kind of talked about a number of concerns. We could go probably on and on through continual lists of concerns. Uh, will we have enough to feed the world? We have high levels of productivity, but we still have levels of food insecurity. Uh, in um, Canada and the United States, and some people link those to the, the food system. Um, but so there's going to be a debate, and I guess there's always been a debate. And um, one of the things you spoke to yesterday was how how are we going to move forward in that discussion? And I, I would just kind of open it up for you to discuss how you think we should go forward as we kind of move into the 21st century. Yes, I, I think there will. For, for folks that are sort of inside commercial agriculture today, I, I, I talked about several challenges I think that will be had in terms of talking about the, that, the advantages of that food system. One of them is this sort of, you know, lessened connection with 
production agriculture that I mentioned before. But it's not just that. It's a whole set of urban versus rural values, I think, about what's important and what we should care about. And, and I think that's going to be a challenge. So I, I, I think if trends continue on the path they're on now, we'll continue to have a world that's more urbanized, that's less connected with agriculture. And so figuring out what's important to people that, that aren't like us is a challenge, but it's something we got to do. we got to figure out how to communicate with people. Um, and uh, it, I think that's one part of it. I think probably also people in the developing developed world, Canada, U.S., um, that while these sort of Malthusian concerns are still out there and they're still real, they're probably not the same. There's not this probably not hitting home for the average consumer. Yes, there there are consumers in Canada and the U.S. that are food insecure, and and that is a real challenge. But for sort of the median consumer, and particularly for those consumers that are influencing these discussions about food and agriculture, the sort of mantra that we need to feed the world is probably not a very persuasive one, um, I, I would guess. And so I, I guess, you know, in a lot of ways, what I would say is the challenge of communication in the future is um, going to be that even more challenging um, for, for traditional agriculture. I don't think those challenges are gonna go away. And so my thinking on that is, you know, we have to think about um, as agricultural scientists, um, you know, what can we do to help meet people where they're at and give, give them the things they want? And I think, you know, what, what we've largely done as food and ag scientists is, is create science and technology to increase productivity. Um, but I think we have to meet consumer, sort of those urban upper class consumers where they're at with their needs. And if they're concerned about the environment or, or health or, or other things, animal welfare, what can we do in terms of our science to help improve those outcomes too with technology? And I think there are, you know, a whole host of really exciting and innovative technologies and linking those with those stated concerns of those food consumers, uh, I think is really one of the keys going forward is uh, being able to demonstrate and illustrate that the, the science and technology and productivity growth can help solve the problems you're worried about too. And also trying to think about creative ways of, of dealing with the concerns they're worried about, whether it's consolidation or intellectual property ownership, or some of those things, you know, or, or you know, um, you know, these these sort of issues. Try to think through creative ways that, that they're not only you know increasing productivity, but they're socially acceptable, <laughs> kind of too. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of the future that I would like to see, uh, whether we can be there or not, is have a efficient production system that can still really help these food security issues, because we really ha will have population growth. We really will need to increase productivity to meet those, uh, but we need to be able to have a society that's, that enables us to use ag, uh, technologies um, that, that is accepting of them. And so we've got to think about those technologies creating benefits, demonstrable benefits for consumers that they probably haven't been able to see directly before. And that will only become more important in the future, I think, if we continue to, to urbanize and if we continue, hopefully, to become wealthier, those you know those concerns are not gonna go away. People will be able to be more concerned about things like animal welfare and environment and health uh, because we can afford to do those. And so I think as ag scientists and as producers, we have to think about adopting new technologies and new systems that can address those concerns um, as well. So my, my answer is not that we turn our backs on technology, but we think about using these technologies to create the kind of outcomes that people are telling us they really want. Do you have any sense of how you plan to engage with students and your faculty and, and the field in general in the future on these issues? How will Jason Lusk be <laughs> more, you know, continuing along this? 
I certainly hope so, as long as people are willing to listen <laughs> and uh, and fund some of the research that we want to do. I'm I'm happy to to help play a role. And um, you know, I think one of the, you know, frankly, one of the my strong motivations here is that there's been a lot of discussion um, about you know food and agriculture. It's really been um, a uh, these have become topics that have become much more covered in the media than they were in the past. So, uh, you know, I mentioned yesterday that when I was coming out of grad school, that in some ways, it was, you know, some people seem to be a little embarrassed of calling themselves an agricultural economist. You know, they, they, they were sort of second-class economists in a way, but uh, I certainly don't feel that way. It certainly isn't true anymore that in a lot of ways, there's never been a better time to be an ag economist because people care about the things we're working on um, they want the kind of expertise that we have. Uh, media wants it. Um, government wants it. NGOs w- want it. And so it, it's fantastic to be in a profession who has a, a set of knowledge and skills that is in high demand. Um, and I really think that that's a part of my, my motivation, both being as a head of a department as somebody who also is wrapping up their term as a, the president of a main professional society of ag economists is, you know, I think our profession does great work that can really help inform these debates, that that can really help us make better decisions than some of the things I see proposed on there. And I may not always agree with some of my ag economist colleagues, but I'm almost certainly in most cases to respect where they're coming from, understanding their logic, know they've thought carefully about these issues. And so I think, you know, personally, one of my goals is just to make people more aware of the work that food and agricultural economists are doing, because I think really both as consumers, producers, and policymakers, we would make better decisions if people were more aware of the kinds of work that food and ag economists were doing. All right, thank you. Jason Lusk on the future of food. We'll put up several links to his, uh, a couple of his books that he's written on the subject, um, as well as to his blog. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks, Brady. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.